0: Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm David Badil, and in this episode, I'm joined by an actor, writer, radio DJ, and TV presenter. His career as a documentary filmmaker started in 2011 when he presented shows including Autistic Superstars, Teen Gangs, and Extreme Series in Africa and the UK. Extreme Russia won a Royal Television Society Award. His book, Unseen My Journey, explores some of the stories behind these documentaries and how he's developed his craft. He's, of course, Reggie Yates. Hello, Reggie. That was a really nice intro. Well, thank you very much. There were no insults in it. <laughs> there were no insults. A piece of insults later on, don't <laughs> worry. But they've got to be spontaneous, I think. Yeah, I kind, I,
1: I kind of zoned out a little while you were talking, talking really about nicely you. about me. Yeah. Just,
0: you brought along a number of objects, haven't you, about your life? I and have, yeah. Writing. But I wanted to start, actually, in your book, there's a moment where you talk about a New Statesman piece, Yeah. piece, a nice piece. Uh, although it sounds like it might not have been, where the woman says, I think the the headline of the piece was, does Reggie Yates have the weirdest career in television? Is that right?
1: It's uh, an apt title, uh, and it made me worried when I saw it uh, Mm. because I thought it wasn't going to be favourable, but it was actually quite the opposite.
0: Yeah, but Um, talk
1: about that, because it has been eclectic, hasn't it, your career? It's gone
0: gone, gone to a lot of different places.
1: Well, it's it's funny because um, in talking about this book and talking about my career... Holistically, if you will, it's had a lot of people use the same words when they're defining it, which is confusing mm. or a bit all over the place, things like right. that. When in reality, I think it's quite honest because my career genuinely speaks to my interests. And as it's moved and, and shifted, so have I. And I think it's really easy to take for granted the fact that I started so young. You know, I started in TV when I was eight. You're, t- you're a child actor? Yes, yes, I was a child actor. The, the second gig I did was with someone you've just mentioned, Stephen Fry. We were just talking before we started. Yeah. I did Fry and Laurie when I was eight. The first did thing I you? ever did, yeah, the first thing I ever did was Desmond's, and I was doing like comedy and drama and lots of different bits and pieces. Yeah, you talk and, about
0: that in the intro to the book because yeah. the book is really about your documentaries, but the intro there's a little bit about that, yeah. about how you became, you know, someone on TV and how that was quite unusual mm. for your background. I mean, it's unusual for my background as well, actually. I sometimes think, you know, my parents had no idea of that world, no right. sense of it. Mm-hmm. How did you find your way into it? Well, it was in quite an organic way. Basically, I had way too much
1: energy. My mum wanted to get me out of the house to give herself some respite, and I wasn't good enough to join the Junior Gunners. I was crap at football, but I loved it. Mm. I didn't want to go to the Scouts. I remember we went to the Scouts on Holloway Road. We looked in the window and there were all these kids wearing brown shorts with the yellow neckerchiefs. And I remember literally saying to my mum, I ain't wearing that. No, you wouldn't look good. I would have looked like a complete twerp. <laughs> so that was the end of that. And then um, a friend of hers said that there's this drama club up the road in Barnsbury, which is only like £2.50 a lesson. You should send him, it's cheap and he'll love it. And I did. That, that was Anna Share? Local community drama group called Anna Share, which had an agency attached. And even though we were kids from council estates or whatever if we showed some sort of promise we'd get put on this thing called the casting card which meant we were sent up for auditions and because I was such a show-off and such a big head of of a child at that age I was very quickly sort of fast-tracked to going for castings and I just got everything I went for to begin with and Mm suddenly was launched into this world that was a million miles away from my council estate, my family, and you know, my very West African background. I was suddenly in a very white, middle-class TV arena.
0: To get into the book a bit, mm. how do you track a journey from child actor or from Anna Share to being in Russia doing extreme... Yeah. Documentaries. It's not a normal pathway. No, not at all. And the connection that I make is very much about what I said about my
1: career being honest, because every stage of my career has reflected my interests, and I've been very fortunate in being able to do that. You know, to begin with, the first thing I ever did, which was Desmond's, it was a sitcom about a black barbershop in Peckham, It yeah. was one of my favourite shows on TV. Yeah. And I was just really lucky to do it. And then I did Fry and Laurie. I was a kid that would stay up late and watch Alexi Sale and all of the alternative comedy stuff before I even really understood how, yeah. how on the edge it was. Yeah. This is before I was 10. And then I found myself suddenly presenting kids' TV, the stuff that I used to watch. So everything that I've done, even when it was out of my control in terms of the sort of work that would be offered my way, reflected my interests. So as I got to a point of um, having that little bit more control and a little bit more notoriety, I found myself in a position where I could say, do you know what, I want to do this now. And mm. it really spoke to issues that I cared about. And the book sort of has this, I would say it because I've written it, mm. but it has this interesting sort of cyclical way, chapter on chapter, which is talking about a personal experience mm. and almost a moment in my life which really connected me to an issue or a, a thing that later found itself back on my radar in the shape of a documentary. And then, you know, I sort of end it with the formative that came from that experience that brings us right
0: back right. to where I started. So. Yeah. I can see that in the book. that It's not just here is a documentary I did. It's about how you felt mm. during the documentary. It's about your sort of, for want of a better word, personal growth. Yeah. That's sort of happens in each chapter of the documentary. But just before we go into that, you know, the actual moment, I think it's a discussion that you had with Danny Cohen, mm. who I know, who used to run... BBC TV, where he basically said to you, you know, this is something you could do. Mm. You know, hard-hitting, important, difficult, subject matter documentaries. And I told him he was wrong. Yeah. yeah. So so how did you do it anyway? Well, Danny was adamant that I should be doing docs, whereas I felt
1: because of my levels of self-belief at the time, that I wasn't the right person to be doing factual television. At the time, I was a young black guy in my early... T- I was a young black guy. I've yeah, changed still now. I'm purple. I'm purple now. You might not have noticed.
0: <laughs> That's what documentaries does to you. Yeah,
1: it changes your colour. <laughs> yeah. It makes you green. Uh, anyhow, I was, ironically, I was green at the time. Yeah. I was in my early 20s, and I had so little self-belief that I felt because I didn't see any examples in that arena that looked like me or sounded like me, I wouldn't mm. be able to, I wouldn't be taken seriously. Mm. So I went on this massive monologue with Danny about how he was wrong, about how, you know, I don't have any experience. I'm not a journalist. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not an investigative reporter. I'm yeah. none of the things that yeah. I could be seen as if I were to launch myself into that world. And I was adamant that no one would respect or believe my opinion.
0: Yeah.
1: And then he just sort of swept my feet away by just saying, well, that's exactly why you should do it. You've got an opportunity to be the voice of the man on the couch
0: and you've also mm. got an opportunity to grow with your audience, mm. so do it. Mm. You can't really argue with that. Let's just dip into the book yep. now with an extract from the audiobook, which you read, and this is actually a moment in the book when you're starting to look at presenting in a different way. In any African home that enjoys television as a family, programme choice is usually placed firmly
1: in the hands of the ranking family member. Growing up in a Ghanaian home, right down to the doilies and fridge for the Tupperware, my stepfather reigned supreme over the remote control. That sought-after piece of kit invariably sat submissively on the arm of his favourite chair. For us kids, his dominance of the sole screen in the house usually worked against us, but occasionally there were moments on the box he'd pick that were brilliant. It was at this point in my teens that the presenters I'd looked to with admiration shifted, I was drawn to those that no longer felt like hosts, but far more like versions of their true self, only without the profanity, in some cases. The unapologetically loud Chris Evans and don't forget your toothbrush was a commander of every second committed to tape. Regardless of his shoulder pad heavy purple suits, somehow I felt that I knew who he was as a bloke. That connective sleight of hand was incredible to watch and inspiring. Terry Christian on The Word, Davina McCall on streetmate, and even Jonathan Ross's late night persona all shared elements of getting the job done in the most traditional way. What made them special to me was the ability to find a moment to inject that little twinkle, making the mundane come alive. The one thing all of these fantastic presenters had in common wasn't their likeable personalities or cheeky tone. Who they were on screen was fundamentally bound by the style of TV they were fronting. It was at this stage that what I wanted to do hadn't shown itself yet. But in the shape of a terrible
0: haircut and an offensively loud bowling shirt, it was about to. That's Reggie Yates reading from his book Unseen. It's always kind of weird hearing yourself, isn't it? Like read back. I do my own audiobooks and I always think, shouldn't a proper voice be doing this? (laughs) Realize how high my voice is. (laughs) It sounds good. Honestly. It sounds (laughs) good. I think it's an interesting thing, actually, because I think if you are putting forward your personality on screen, then I think when you write a book about that, it's quite good actually, however much it might feel awkward to you, to do it in your own voice. Yeah. Because it's all about I'm trying to project who I am within this story. Mm, it would have been weird having someone exactly. else do it. It definitely. would have been weird have someone else do it. The first chapter of the book mm. is about one of your extreme South Africa documentaries when you went to meet Profit and Borrow. Yeah. Now for anyone who doesn't know, tell us about Profit and Borrow. Profit and Borrow very recently made the news
1: globally because he was charging 5,000 Rand, which is local South African currency, for photos that he took. After going to heaven. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. Have you seen those photos? Uh, no, I haven't, because I haven't paid the 5,000 <laughs> right. rand. Oh, you have to pay. You have to pay to see the photos. Oh. So he went to heaven, took some photos, came back, and was selling the photos. Oh, right, yeah, but no one's put them on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you that's think, what happens. Right? These days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's the sort of guy that Prophet and Borrow is. He is a pastor who has a congregation that's massive. I think it's like 10,000 people or something It's in stupid. Johannesburg, is it? Yes. Right. And it's um, right out of town, right bang in the middle of like several townships. And people walk for miles to come to his congregation every week. And they essentially fund his lifestyle. He is a Rolls Royce driving, multiple mansion owning pastor who makes his money from his from his congregation.
0: Yeah, I watched the documentary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you are prepared in the documentary to go up against him. And that's difficult with someone who's who's essentially a god in that situation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, completely.
1: So talk about that. Well, uh, I didn't intend to clash with the man. But, you know, as I say in the book, it was quite early on in my documentary career and my ego got in the way of the film. And by that, I mean, I wasn't willing to give him the room to be him in his entirety because so much of what defined him offended me. And my relationship with religion has been long and weird and twisted. I was raised in a Pentecostal Christian home, like most West African kids. And then when I was 11, my mum converted to Islam because she remarried a Muslim man, and suddenly I was handed a Quran and told I was Muslim. Yeah. And my relationship with faith has always been sort of up and down. And as an adult, my relationship with faith is entirely on my own terms, as opposed to when I was a kid, of course. So to be in this environment and see this man who's who's essentially being paid to deliver hope. It troubled me on so many levels. And I had issues with watching him spend frivolously and the way that he would deal with issues. For instance, you know, there's that weird blurred line between culture and religion in Mm. in Africa. And speaking from first-hand experience, particularly in West Africa, you get sort of spirituality mixed in with the written word in the Bible. And that was the case in South Africa as well. So... You know, he'd go from verse and chapter right the way through to casting out spiritual husbands and demons by stamping and on then, women's vaginas. Yes,
0: there's quite a lot yeah. about genitals in his sermons. Yes, now, there's a bit. Of, <laughs> there's a bit of the documentary where you talk about how he says something about touching a biscuit or blowing your vuvuzela. Right, and that is his code for vagina and penis. Yes, I it mean is. I've blown a vuvuzela. Can I've I tell been, you? Yeah, uh, I went sorts... to the World Cup in South Africa, oh. so it's above board. Well, what, this is, this what I is... just said, and then it confused me right, <laughs> when I heard his version of it.
1: This has become very confessional, <laughs> <Yeah>, I
0: know, <laughs> but but he does have. That's one of the things that's weird about reading that chapter, and. The end of it, he makes everyone take their pants off and wave them. The end of a big thing where you're on stage and it was the strangest thing in the
1: world to see a room full of men and women, predominantly women, mm. waving their underwear in the air. It was the strangest yeah, thing because Tom he, Jones. well, no, uh, you know, no one was throwing it, thank God, because I'm pretty <laughs> sure they weren't all clean. Yeah. Um, he was blessing it, right? He was blessing their pants, okay. And it's just <laughs> it was just the strangest experience. But like you know, to, to return to your question, I challenged him on a lot of the things that he saw as normal. Both in terms of uh, spirituality, but also his relationship with money,
0: yeah.
1: and also the way that he he would throw it around.
0: Well, I think one of the things that you've said there, which is really, really interesting, which I think, having done a few documentaries myself, is one of the things that makes documentaries kind of a dance mm. to some extent. Is you said, you know, that you felt you put your ego in the way. I don't think that's true of that show. I think absolutely, you learn who that man is, but there is a thing, isn't there, which is how much am I going to react to what this person is saying in a way that might put their backs up and therefore they won't reveal themselves or how much am I going to let them catch themselves in their own net? Yeah, when someone's behaviour is is offending
1: you, it's difficult to not react in the way that you would in the real world. But when there's a camera there and you have an objective and that is to give this person the floor Mm. to speak their truth, sometimes you have to allow your ego to not get in the way. And that's why I think my own beliefs and my own issues with what he was doing in hindsight, was kind of a mistake. I mean, it, led, it ended up being a really interesting film because there was, as you say, a dance, you know. It, mm. There was a chase element to a lot yeah. of the film where I was trying to catch up with him, I was trying to find him, he'd cancel, he'd turn up three, four hours late. That all added to the film. But I think that there was another film there, if I'd not behaved in the way that I did. But it was a massive learning experience and I was so glad that it was the first film that I made in that extreme strand because I then went on to make two more in South Africa then a further
0: three in Russia and three in the UK. You also brought in some objects Uh, This Mm. is part of this podcast. The authors always bring in some objects to talk about Mm. you know, things in their world that to some extent might define them or tell us more about them. What's your first object? The Pioneer DJXRX. It sounds really complicated and sounds like I've just got to Google it right now. I don't what that is. All right, the
1: best way to explain it is it's a set of CD decks. So mm. they're not record decks. All right. They're decks where you can play CDs through them, but they also have a mixer inbuilt. So that's what I want you to have in your mind. Yeah. Technically, they're not really CD decks because this works off of USBs. So you can basically plug a USB in each side as opposed to putting a record on the deck or injecting a CD. So you can have MP3s playing. It's just MP3s. There's no uh, CDs. I did oh, that no for, CDs? I did that for the visual. Okay. So you know if you think about like CD decks, yeah. it's basically that but without a slot for your CD. I see. So you plug in a USB and you've then got 100 gigs or however big your USB is full mm-hmm. of music right. to play and do mixes, etc. because the mixer is inbuilt. Okay. So it's quite a portable little setup that you can plug into a huge sort of club sound system, PA right. thing for festivals or whatever. So I have one at home. So this is, this is you, the DJ, you're talking about now? Yeah, and uh, by DJ, I mean, I, I occasionally play at parties and festivals and club nights and I have my own club night that I do sometimes and I'm only bothered. But for me, more than anything, it's actually quite therapeutic to play music, but even more therapeutic to mix music. Right. There is something about, like you know, you know what flow is, right? You know the idea I've of... I've heard of it. Okay, I don't know if
0: I've ever flowed.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> but as a writer, you a million percent oh, have. yeah. So flow is that thing where and you And as a performer. Yes, exactly. And I'm sure when you're on stage, you sort of riff, and then sometimes yeah. you'll realise 30 minutes have gone by because you're sure. just in flow. Yeah. So flow is this idea of being fo- so focused on one thing, you're just acting and reacting so naturally that time sort of goes away and you lose hours, you lose
0: a huge chunk of time and you end up achieving something that you haven't planned. In the zone. You're in the moment. People talk about right. I, know, I do feel that sometimes as a performer, right. but I've never DJed. So, well, it's but, the same
1: thing. Right. Like when you're mixing records, you forget everything. And the reason that that's the first thing on my list is because you know when you're writing, sometimes you get to a point where you need... To think about something else because it can be all that's on your mind. It can stop you from sleeping, it can get in the way of your relationship. Mm. So sometimes it's nice to do something that completely blocks you thinking about the thing that you've been thinking about for months. Sure. And mixing records is that because you have to concentrate. Yeah. And oh, right. so much enjoyment that comes from it. Yeah. Like you're taking two things and making something completely new. Yeah. It's just amazing and you just lose yourself in it. I took my DJX RX in my suitcase because it mm. fits with me to Los Angeles because I was there for some work stuff and I was writing and I had it as
0: a little escape and it was just the best thing in the world. Let's move on, Mm. even though that is really interesting, but I want to talk about Russia now. When did you do the Russian documentary, the first one? I think it was 2012. Okay, 2012. I mean, since then, you know, the sense of what's happening in Russia and the sense of their, you know, the Russian ability to sort of spread chaos in the world (laughs) has become more extreme, but you sort of give a sense of that already mm. yeah. in the documentaries. There's something bubbling in the time that I was there, for Right, sure. right. And also I guess there's a really interesting thing, because your documentary is essentially about race in mm. that sense, because you're going to meet fascists. Yeah. And so... Again, that's a different way of putting yourself in danger. You know, you're in South Africa, you're a different kind of black guy in South Africa to yeah. the black people you're meeting there, but suddenly you're the only black person. <laughs> for, miles. You know, for miles. in <laughs> Siberia. The whitest place in the world or whatever. Yeah. 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 So
1: talk about that. Well, being in, in Russia for the first time, you know, it's the first time I'd ever been there, I was fascinated by it because my version of Russia, much like most things in my life, was based almost entirely on film. You know, when I thought of Russia, I thought of Rocky. Because that was all I knew. You know, I thought about that guy, if he dies, he dies. That was all I thought about when when Russia came up. And I sort of saw them as, you know, being the age that I am, as the big bad guys that America hated. And, you know, we were on the brink of war with Russia for most of the Mm. late 80s, early 90s. So that was how I saw them. And when I turned up, I was just really open to being surprised and open to finding and meeting a new Russia that was much more global in terms of its sensibilities and, you know, not as separate as it it had felt in my mind's eye, at least. I was wrong, (laughs) you know, very, very wrong and quite quickly. And the scariest thing about that was that the people I was meeting were young Mm. and they behaved and thought in a way that I just wouldn't associate with people of my age because, you know, we are the first generation that has access to endless information through our mobile phone. So to not socially educate yourself and to not know what it means to be someone of a similar age on the other side of the world who just happens to be a different
0: colour or a different faith to you, I just don't understand. It just didn't compute. But what about your sort of interpersonal relationships with these people? Because they come across strongly in the documentary and in the book. These are individual people. Mm. But I can't remember all the names of Vadim and... Yeah, yeah. What's the guy beginning with D? How do you pronounce uh, it? Demushkin. Yeah. Dimitri uh, Demushkin. Yeah. And, you know, you're sort of... It feels to me like getting to know these guys. Mm. And yet what do you perceive as their attitude towards you, their essentially fundamentally racist attitude towards you? They
1: didn't like me, to put it lightly.
0: Um, And they played the game. They saw me as
1: an opportunity to spread their propaganda. And they played the role of open-armed, welcoming host through Russia, if you will. And they almost wanted to present their group, their organisation as someone who was actually progressive, Mm. as people who were progressive, sorry, and people who aren't as racist or racist at all in terms of the way that... Uh, the media has presented them in the past. Mm. And obviously, you can only really maintain that facade for, for so long. And yeah. it all sort of starts to come through quite quickly who they really are and how they see the world. And the film oh. was massively challenging because I was, as you say, in the middle of these fascists. I mean, you're these actually marching with them at one point. That's how the film begins. Well, yeah. we started shooting anyway. The first shoot day was me going on a nationalist march with thousands of nationalists marching through one of the suburbs, chanting some of the most horrendous stuff. And obviously... It wasn't in English, so when my
0: translator was translating some of the things that were being said,
1: I was horrified.
0: Yeah. We've got a clip here, actually, from when you first confront the far-right nationalists. It's not during the march, but it's when you enter Vadim's apartment. (laughs) Vadim loved weapons and
1: proudly walked me through an endless stream of BB guns and knives. On display and filling every shelf and flat surface, weapons were everywhere. He alluded to using his knives in street fights, but with a broad, creepy smile, made a point of leaving things ambiguous. Knives were clearly a huge part of what Vadim saw as his identity. He never left the house without one. Given his array of different-sized weapons, none of which were small, I wondered what he would carry on a normal day. I would go on to learn quickly, in the case of Vadim and his nationalist friends, what made a knife dangerous wasn't its size, it was knowing how to use it. Trust back in place and showing off out of the way, Vadim invited me to a knife club run by Demushkin. I was going to see how they trained with their weapons and hopefully find out what exactly they were training for. Only after I'd put up with the obvious dislike of his nationalist pals during the world's most awkward train journey. Demushkin led the class dressed in a pair of dad-like sweatpants. With a guide on how to land a punch and strike without having your knife taken, I was confused as to what this was trying to encourage. The answer I was repeatedly given was self-defence. But this late into my journey, that didn't wash. With kids in the class as young as 14, watching a full lesson on how to injure, disable, or even permanently damage someone with a knife was frightening. Yes, the packed class were all swinging rubber knives, but the fact
0: they all had the real thing in their backpacks and on their belts scared the crap out of me. That was an extract from Unseen, My Journey, by Reggie Yates, read by Reggie Yates. From your point of view, talking about having met, say, these guys, do you think how to draw them out is a more complicated thing than just facing them down? Well, there's no right or wrong, really. I think
1: Mm. it depends on what it is you're trying to achieve. For me, arguing with someone in that sort of environment is the wrong way to go about it because you're not going to change their mind. Mm. I think the important thing is to actually give them an opportunity to say how they feel and to say what they think. And... It should be a conversation and I think the more opportunity you give them to be transparent in their take on the world, the easier it is to really understand the flaws in their thought process. Mm. So to just shout someone down I think is a waste of everybody's time because you don't actually achieve anything.
0: What about fear? What about when you felt frightened in these situations? You say they're scared the crap out of me. You know, you are putting yourself into perilous situations. How do you contain the fear? You know this. There's that weird thing of being on camera in any situation mm. where you kind
1: of plug into this strange, for want of a better word, arrogance. And that is that nothing can happen to me because I'm on camera. Mm. And you sort of have to believe that. Mm. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to do what it is you need to do. You trust the system. You trust the red tape. You trust
0: that there's been risk assessment done. Yeah. <laughs> that really is a serious point, actually. When you put yourself in these situations, whether it be Africa or Russia or whatever... Whatever pre-scripted idea of what's going to happen is going to happen it has to go out the window because all sorts of stuff will go on. Yeah. Where you think, okay, this situation's not been pre-prepared. Yeah, and you can't predict everyone's behaviour. Yeah. So the
1: best thing you can do, I find, is treat people with respect. You know, I was raised in an environment where at times it got a bit hairy. Mm. And I was raised to believe, you know, if you shake a man's hand firmly and you look him in the eye, you will be treated with the respect that you're giving. And that has served me really well. It served me, I, mean, I was an inmate in a Texas jail for one of my documentaries for a week. And... I didn't feel threatened. I walked in and was a little bit worried, mm. and then quite quickly after meeting people, and I literally went around everybody in the pod, which was made up of 60 men, and I shook everybody's hand. And after
0: that, I was just another guy in an orange jumpsuit. Mm. I wasn't the who's that guy. Let's talk about your next object, which is about, to some extent, how you do contain your feelings during these filming, which is a notebook. Mm. Tell me about the moleskin notebook. Yeah, so the notebook for me is the place where I'd free write. And, you know, people talk about writer's block. I don't know if you've ever experienced it. I was watching Jimmy Carr, actually, Mm. in in an interview he did the other day that I went to see, where he dismissed the idea of writer's block. Basically, he said, just do it. Do your work. Get on with it. (laughs) And I have a slight element of that, because I think that even when I can't think of anything, when I need to write... If I start writing, something will come up. Come exactly. Up. Well, this is it. Just I, start.
1: I don't it think it? I've done enough to say whether or not writer's block exists. You know, mm. I've, I've written one book. Who the hell am I? I've written one film, one book. I've, you know, who am I? to Tell people about writer's block. But I do believe that when you feel that you're approaching a wall or when stuff isn't coming out, I think you should just sort of pivot. Mm. And for me, the pivot comes in a notebook, and that is free writing and going away from stepping away from the laptop almost and picking up a pen. And just writing down your thoughts and just free writing and not thinking about it and allowing your brain to sort of switch off and just letting stuff come out leads to some good stuff. Yeah. So whenever I have sort of felt that things are slowing down uh, when it came to writing this book, I'd just jump in my, my notebook and just let it flow. And then good stuff would come and I never really stopped. You know, I I wrote the book over, I think it was like eight months, maybe nine months. But at the same time, while I was writing this book, I wrote a feature film, I wrote two half hour TV pilots, right. three three comedy pilots. Right. And I um and I made three hours of documentary around the world. Yeah. And you know, it's a lot at the same time as writing a book. And I'm not yeah. saying this to show off. I'm saying this because I never really allowed myself to stop writing. Any moment I had, I knew it wasn't very long, so I just get it done. And yeah. you just even if it means, you know, you say I'm gonna do a page there and you end up doing three, it's like brilliant, I'm in front.
0: But that's a lot of ideas. You're talking about different for different things, yeah. you know. And actually, the next chapter of your book is about the body, to some extent. It's about men who are <laughs> obsessed with the body. Mm. And you talk a little bit about how that is a road you could have seen yourself going down. Mm. As it happens, what you've just said is, you know, to, for want of a better phrase, you've looked after your mind. <laughs> yeah. But these men haven't done that. They have found themselves so obsessed with the body that, in a way, they don't think about anything except working out yeah which is quite scary because mm. there has been a
1: huge shift in the attitude we have here in the uk i think the way that we see working out or we see the gym has changed dramatically like i remember being a kid and the only people that went to the gym were sort of dormant you know it was all spit and sawdust when mm. you thought about working out and you thought about weights mm. whereas now you'd be hard-pressed to find you know, many teenagers who don't work it is out. A,
0: it is a bit man now.
1: Guys and girls, everybody. Uh, yeah. It's just culturally a thing now. It's it's something that we do, and I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's amazing. Mm. I think what is scary is what it can lead to because you've got kids starting so much younger now, showing an interest in their body at quite a young age, can unfortunately quite quickly lead to narcissism. Mm. You know, when you twin that with social media yeah. and the the whole sort of sharing element of your day, if a part of your day is working out and you are not particularly secure in yourself you're going to need affirmation and that's a great way to get it if you've got a six pack or if you know you've seen a massive change you've seen a massive growth i mean i'm i'm someone who shares working out and shares change in my body on my social media but you know i'm i'm not doing it for affirmation i'm not doing it for for pats on the back i actually think it's quite funny
0: i, but I really ridiculous. like the fact that in that chapter you talk about the your own vulnerability as it mm. were to that culture. Hmm. Like, you are someone who's, like, craved a six-pack. <laughs> yeah. about, And then you go into these gyms where people, that's, like, what they spend all their time doing yeah. and then you meet a man who's, you know, using plastic surgery at great expense and at possibly great physical cost to himself mm. to create an over-determined exaggerated kind of a, absurdly you know I don't know what the word it's is a cartoon, a cartoon image yeah. of a six pack really, like a, a superhero thing <laughs> it's good that you talk about your own vulnerability there I think but also I sort of wondered when I read that bit, particularly with that guy. What's mm. his name? The guy who spent two hundred thousand on Rodrigo. Yeah, whether you felt the need to sort of stage an intervention of sorts. But <laughs> you need—I to- I don't think any intervention would
1: change anything for this man. I think he was too far gone. I think he is too far gone. Right. Since making the film, I know he's gone on to have more surgery uh, because he's been in the news. You know, he—he defines—he well, he refers to himself as the human Kendall. right? Because he's that put together and that sculpted. And I don't think he looks like Ken. I think he looks like someone who's had a lot of plastic surgery. Mm. And that is no slight to him because he's a lovely, lovely bloke. But he is someone who has gone so far, he's almost got that, that Hollywood thing. You know, when you see uh, women in, in Hollywood who've had plastic surgery, mm. they look like the plastic surgery face. They look yeah. like a thing that isn't normal. Yeah. And some people are chasing that aesthetic because they want to look like they've spent yeah. the money they want to be a part of that weird-faced club they want to look
0: like they've had the work right and so the work itself is a kind of social status it's marker. a status thing yeah okay actually you say at one point that you wish you'd asked him where he'd got the money from yeah is that a thing that happens occasionally that you think like oh i wish i'd asked this question all the time because
1: the people that i meet for these films are so complicated and so fascinating that you can just find yourself falling into wormholes of different detail of their life or their reasoning or their why, if you will. And someone like him, there was just endless things that I needed to ask this man and I only had an hour or two hours with him. Mm -hmm. And so I asked lots of questions in detail and I was fascinated by who he was before the surgery and his motivations and and all the rest of it and I just never got
0: around to the money bit. Presumably if he's spending that amount of time having plastic surgery... Mm -hmm. He can't have that much of a job, so where's he getting the money from? You right. know, it takes a long time to recover from that completely amount of plastic surgery. I, d- I don't know. I don't who do knows. Yeah. In the book you talk about how he refers to pictures of the guy that he was <laughs> as a completely different person. Yeah. And it's a weird type of self-knowledge there, isn't there, that mm-hmm. he knows that he's completely destroying who he was, and that often seems to be what's going on, that there's a self-hatred.: Yeah It's almost as going if on. Their previous self no longer exists.
1: They are not the same person. It's like, you know, someone who has a gender replacement surgery. It's almost like that was a person that exists that's separate from me. Mm. And I've been around people who have had surgery or Mm. halfway through it. And Mm. it's the same thing, basically. They see their former self as a completely different iteration of of them and their past.
0: Okay, let's hear a clip from the audiobook of Unseen, where, in fact, you are with Rodrigo. I found myself
1: in a super posh London hotel that smelt as good as it looked. It was the type of place you'd regret not stealing from. Directed upstairs to one of the bigger suites, I was greeted at the door by Rodrigo. At 32, Rodrigo was a flight attendant with dreams of a glamorous life played out with fantastic flair on his Instagram page. This was a man who knew how to have a good time, or at least it looked like he did online. With a relentless stream of glamorous locations and designer outfits, Rodrigo bombarded his followers with images of opulence. The strangest thing was that I found with every image, regardless of the location, what demanded my attention wasn't the opulent setting or his flamboyant wardrobe. It was his face and physique. At just 32 years old, Rodrigo has had 35 cosmetic procedures and finally feels he's achieved his goal. If I were to list his page-filling surgical breakdown, you'd think that he'd look every bit the image of perfection. In my humble opinion, it was quite the opposite. When Rodrigo welcomed me at the door, his arms were open and face was bright. He was warm, friendly and polite. Every bit the coffeea gentleman, Rodrigo was by all accounts lovely. What was hard to ignore was the obvious surgery he wore with pride. He had that Hollywood face thing you usually associate with rich older women who'd spent a fortune on their cheekbones and handbag dog. His work was very specific in its ambition to be noticed. He had surgery that looked like surgery and it didn't stop at his face. Rodrigo slipped into a nearly there silk robe for an in-room massage and I didn't know where to look. He'd had the same abdominal etching surgery as Lee and his chest area looked as if it had been carved in marble. I was so glad I had met Rodrigo with Lee as his work didn't stop at his abs. His open silk robe placed his sculpted silicone pectorals front and centre wearing a body men fight to achieve, Rodrigo saw himself as reinvented through plastic surgery. With silicone fillers in his biceps, triceps and shoulders, he looked broad and pumped. He talked me through the lipo he'd had in his back and waist, as well as countless other procedures, amounting to a grand total of
0: £210,000. That's Reggie reading from Unseen. One thing, actually, I was thinking about during that is that A lot of your documentaries, whilst being about many different things, are about men Hmm. and about what maleness is to some extent in different ways, Hmm. I would say. I would say the prophet and borrow is a particular type of man. These guys in Russia are a particular type of man. It seems to be men to some extent, I'm very interested in this, who are striving after some lost ideal of manhood. And this is a documentary I haven't seen. Mm. You interviewed this guy called Roosh V for a documentary called Men at War, which is the sort of extreme, within the extremes that I'm already talking about, example of that, of men who are clearly, like, constantly obsessed Mm. with a very, very hard idea of the heroic, noble man that somehow they feel has got lost. You seem to me to be a man who's very much able to, you know be vulnerable, put your feelings out there, all the stuff that those men can't do. Right. So do you think you are drawn to men like that to find out why they're like that? I've always been fascinated in
1: the relationship that we have with our mentors and also the way we see ourselves as men because I think the general consensus of what man is has shifted, which is why the Men at War film Mm. was really interesting. Tell me me. about,
0: what does he think, Roosh V?
1: Roosh V is an interesting one because the Men at War film was... Essentially like a, a case study on masculinity and the modern man. You have this thing online that I didn't know existed, and it's a real thing. It's this big world called the manosphere. Right. It's a real thing, and it's broken down into lots of different groups. The loudest groups are the MUGTOW guys, who are a group of guys who live beneath the, the acronym Men Going Their Own Way, mm. MGTOW. And men going their own way, I wouldn't be so bold as to define them as this, but what I got from what I learned about them was that they believe that, you know, women aren't really and shouldn't and don't necessarily need to be a part of their lives apart from in one lane, and that is for, you know, intercourse and sexual Mm. relations and outside of that, they prefer to be on their own and go their own way. That's the MGTOW guys. You've then got the men's rights activists, Fathers for Justice fit beneath that banner, and then you've got the PUAs, which are the pickup artists and the guys that hang out in bars and use various techniques to get women. Roosh started out as a PUA. He wrote lots of books on picking up women. And he then, over the course of several books about... Well, he has a book called Bang Poland, a book called Bang Ukraine, right. Bang Denmark, etc. Okay. has got a brand. Uh, yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a franchise.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> His thing, if you will, has sort of grown from techniques in picking up women and the PUA stuff mm. to this mugtow thing, which is about being a man but also having to navigate what has become, in their eyes, a woman's world and a world that puts gay men and women above Straight men. Right. It's a
0: resentful... Yeah.
1: Well, that's that's the energy that I got from Roosh. Actually, in the film and in the book, I talk about attending one of his seminars in London and just seeing the men in the room was really interesting for me because it wasn't what you'd assume. It was all kinds of men Mm. of all ages. You know, his message really
0: resonated with them because of what they were experiencing. Yeah. There's a thing happening now, it seems to me, at the moment of which Trump is a symptom, I think, which is this kind of like men who feel you know wronged almost wait exactly men who feel like that they are their place in the world should be the supreme one <laughs> yes. and that somehow it wasn't for a long time it was usurped by women or by ethnic minorities or by gays or whatever mm. and they're furious about it and so trump Trump's placement as a very powerful man, as literally the most powerful man in the world, mm. is kind of their champion. Yeah, kind of. Because it comes from this anger that it's we should be the most important people. <laughs> we should be at the centre of the universe and we're not mm. due to sort of liberalism. And Rouge is a version of that, you think? I think so. I
1: think so. I think he's a symptom of it. And, you know, the fact that his seminars that he's done all over the world have quite loud reactions. During the shooting of that documentary, he went to Canada to go mm. and do a talk there and he was pretty much kicked out of the country because... Yeah. It was around, it, was, it wasn't that long after he wrote a piece that went viral where he spoke about rape being legalised yeah. and that it should be something that isn't illegal if done on
0: private property. When you spend time with them, how do you connect in a way with that? Well, here's the thing, right? We spoke about the Mboro film, mm.
1: we spoke about South Africa. That was, I think, the first film that I made in the Extreme Strand. This film with Rouche V was in Extreme UK, which was maybe two years later. So this idea of allowing my ego to get in the way of the truth, I'd learnt so much from getting it wrong. So at this point, as much as he offended me, as much as some of the things he was saying disgust me, I almost, I didn't egg him on, but I basically would just keep asking why mm. and kept giving him more right. and more reason to tell me more. Right. And the more he spoke, the more obvious it was how flawed his, his mm. sensibilities were and also things were coming out of him that just said so much about why he sees the world and the way he does and it humanised him.
0: Yeah, and at that point, do you, and I'm going to use the word like, which is, I'm sure, the wrong word, but I can't think of another one. Do you start to sort of like him or at least have some sympathy because this is a damaged person? Well, the key and is... you have some charity for why he's like this. Oh, it's more about understanding them. Mm. You know, I
1: think I'd be a liar if I said that I went out with the intention of liking everyone that I met. Mm. I don't want to be liked. I don't mm. need to be liked. If okay. I am, great. Yeah. But I don't intend to like everybody that I meet. I just want to understand them better. Right. And I think that we... Got closer to that with with Rouge, you know?
0: You've brought some running shoes.
1: Yeah. Uh, Why well, have you brought some running shoes? Sorry, that's uh, a I pivoted. <laughs> yeah, just a bit. Yeah. The running shoes again were another thing that really helped during the process of this. We spoke about the masculinity film and working out and all the rest of it. And Jim has become a part of my life in a way that I really love because it's a great place to sort of decompress for me. Mm. And particularly when I'm writing and in writing this book, it would be the start of every day. So I would go for a jog or I'd run to the gym and work out or uh, when I was in Los Angeles writing, I'd walk up the steepest hills to get there and have a sweat on before I even started. And I loved it because I'd come out of there almost springboarded by endorphins and get
0: straight to the computer and just smash out like 10, 20 pages. It was the best. Let's have the last bit of audio. In this final extract, again, you've put yourself in danger. I worry about you. (laughs) You're in Ferguson, Missouri, just after there were enormous race clashes following the shooting of Michael Brown in 2014. At the time of filming, St. Louis based
1: many of its municipal budgets on fining the residents of the municipality. Up to 60% of any one area's budget would come from fines, primarily those issued for traffic violations. Brendan went on to explain that increasingly, new laws were being created with an indisputable racial bias. There was a sagging pants violation, wearing one's trousers below the waistline, a manner of walking violation, and recently, walking in a group had become a finable offence also. These new laws carried a $200 fine and felt like an unbelievably obvious attempt to specifically punish young black men. With such laws in place, Distrust between black neighbourhoods and the predominantly white police force were at an all-time high. As a legal aid worker, Brendan spent the lion's share of his time defending poor people on minor offences in court. He allowed me to ride along to see exactly what he did and who he'd be defending. As we walked from the office block to his car, I noticed my jeans were sagging a little low. I didn't have a belt on that day and was a fair bit heavier in 2014, so wearing my clothes baggy... Was my best tactic? Sue me. I raised my T-shirt to show Brendan just how low my denim had dropped and he confirmed a watching police officer probably would have stopped and fined me. Things became all the more serious as soon as he explained what would happen to me as a consequence. If you missed your court date because you didn't have enough money to make the payment, you would go to jail. I checked my pockets and I didn't have enough to buy my way out of jail. Brendan found it hilarious, dropping a very dry... That's why I don't sag.
0: Sorry, that's hilarious, I think. <laughs> it's reminding me of something which you may or may not know. There was a Not the Nine O'Clock News sketch at a point in time when the sus laws were still existing in this country. Okay, okay. And Griffith Jones played a policeman who's hauled up by his you know, superior who's going through the various things that he's brought in as arrest recently. <laughs> and there's stuff like having an Afro hairstyle in a built-up area <laughs> and stuff like that. and And it's basically just an incredibly racist policeman who's making up offences so that he can arrest black people. Wow. And that's... That's what that reminded me of. That's, that's that actually happening. Mm, manner of walking violation. That's, that's incredible. Unbelievable, isn't it? Or, or walking in a group. It's just, <laughs> what? <laughs> or what? Walking in a group with dance moves or not. <laughs> yeah, okay, exactly. <laughs> like, They're my brothers. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a black way. We've got the <laughs> yeah, same yeah. mum and dad. There's just six of us. Yeah, you're going to arrest us? That's amazing. That's incredible. <laughs> when you're in that kind of situation again, you know, at one point you talk about having to step out the door because you felt overwhelmed. Tell me what happened there. The Chicago film, I had to step away from filming for a
1: few minutes and thankfully my director didn't notice because he definitely would have filmed it. Oh, right. This is a separate film to the, the clip we've just heard. Okay. They're similar films in terms of some of the, the themes that we touch on, obviously race and America's relationship with with arms. We made a film about what is, I believe, possibly the, the most violent city in America with the highest murder rate. And I was in the south side of, of Chicago in an area called Englewood. And there's a family called the Leeks who own a funeral home. The head of the family used to drive Martin Luther King around and he's oh, right. sort of become a bit of a celebrity in his own right. And the family have this funeral home that is the biggest funeral home in the area because they actually offer free funerals to people who can't actually afford them. So anyway, we were there shooting a film about the death rate, the murders that have been going on and the fact that this family um, offer these free funerals and also do everything from burying people right the way through to embalming them, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, and I i just spent uh, an hour talking to this lady who was essentially preparing bodies for viewings. I left the room and was sat in the hallway and there was an open door and there was an open casket that was ready for a family to come and see the lady in in the coffin. And it was quite difficult to sort of see because everything hit me at that moment because what was going on at home suddenly smashed me in the face. And that was that a friend of mine had passed away mm. and I was shooting this film instead of being at the funeral. Right. And... Lots of things about mortality and, you know, um, what really matters all kind of rushed to the surface and I just needed to step away and have a little cry and come back and and get back to it Mm. because so much of me is in these films Mm. and so much of what I care about I verbalise and I spoke about it on camera and spoke about how difficult some of the things I was seeing because of what was going on in my own head. You know, I was just really pleased that I'd got to a point in my own life where I was able to share that
0: as opposed to run away from it. In these situations of great pressure, you turn, I believe, to humbugs and, <laughs> and other types of mints, possibly. <laughs>
1: not in moments of pressure. Oh, not in moments of pressure, uh, no. In, in no. Moment, in moments, it's almost like a mini reward. So, uh, a mate This of is mine... object
0: number four or five, wherever we yeah, are. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, so, a mate
1: of mine, Dev, I'll never forget this, and if he hears this, I'm sure he'll laugh. We spoke at the beginning of this conversation about Anna Share. So she had this children's theatre, this local community group that we used to go to. And she used to get us to stand up and read out loud and do improvisation and say stuff about our lives. And I can't remember what the question was in that moment. But it was like something that you do that makes you feel good. I think it was tell a class about it. And Dev stood up and said, when I'm revising, I have a pack of mints. And every time I learn a new equation or every time I I get something right, I reward myself with mint." Okay, wow. I must have been about nine when I heard this. And it stuck with me. And in writing the book... I would always have a packet of humbugs A it. reward thing? It was a reward. So I would, like, have a little mint <laughs> if, if I hit my page count or, okay. like, if I finished the chapter, I'd be like, "Oh, you can have a humbug,
0: and I'd, like, okay. put them and there. That, and, and that didn't have any effect on your weight? <laughs> no, yeah. no, because I wasn't very successful <laughs> in hitting my page count. Okay.
1: No, I, I mean, it was just... It was nice to have that little carrot dangling, and it's it's a weird thing. Like, I've always sort of done it. I've yeah. always had a reward there for myself if I complete the thing that I've got in my head that I want to
0: achieve. No, well, that's good. It's like a really fascinating book, actually. Thank you. It is a really fascinating book. And it's a really interesting way of finding out about you rather than it being a straightforward autobiography. Yeah. What's your next thing in documentaries? Well, I can finally talk about it. The press release came out this week. I'm actually
1: leaving here to continue shooting my new doc for BBC Two, which is on the Grenfell Tower. Oh, right. So I'm making a film about that right now. And it's been fascinating, it's been heartbreaking, it's been enlightening in so many different ways. You know, the first shoot day was me joining a Silent March through Notting Hill. Mm. And as someone who's been going to carnival since I was a kid, Notting Hill to me is noisy, it's loud, it's full of people, it's packed. To be there in silence mm. and, you know, the only thing you can hear on a busy weeknight is the wind, but there's people everywhere was the most surreal and powerful thing I've experienced in a long time. And I really hope that that translates on screen because, you know, we shot it for the film and some of the people we've met, some of the conversations we've had have been really heartbreaking and incredible, I think. Because, you know, we're not making a film about cladding. We're not making a film about social disparity. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the hidden victims, the people Mm. that really haven't been spoken about. You know, there are people from all over the world that were living in, in that building who have gone through unbelievable things to get to this country to start again to give their families a better life. But in this tragedy, they've just become faces on a memorial wall mm. and we don't know who any of them actually are. Sure. So this is a film about the people. And like I said, you know, I'm not an
0: investigative reporter. I'm not a journalist. It's a bloke who cares about people. Yeah, but that's uh, great. It's great that we finish with that because I think it sums up something about you and your work, which is that you are someone who's interested in understanding who people are, mm. you know, in their, all their complexity, in all their flaws, in all their reality. And more and more, I think, we live in a culture where people dismiss who people are because they just see them as caricatures or as an online phantom and mm-hmm. it allows them to be just full of hate or whatever. Mm. But actually, I think it's quite hard to be like that if you really know someone, even if you still don't like them or whatever, you, it's hard to dismiss them. Yeah, without trying to sound massively narcissistic, I think that in doing that,
1: I've learned so much about myself. Mm. And the nice thing is that I've been given the platform to share that on screen. And, you know, this book is that. It's me talking about learning about other people, but by proxy, learning so much about myself and the journey. Reggie Yates, thank you very much.
0: Thanks. Uncommon Type by Tom Hanks. Written and read by two-time Oscar winner Tom Hanks comes Uncommon Type, a collection of 17 wonderful short stories showing that
1: Tom Hanks is as talented a writer as he is an actor.
2: Travelling to the moon was way less complicated this year than it was back in 1969. As the four of us proved, not that anyone gives a whoop, You see, over cold beers in my backyard, with the crescent moon, a delicate prince's fingernail low in the west, I told Steve Wong that if he threw, say, a hammer with enough muscle, said tool would make a 500,000-mile figure eight sail around that very moon and return to Earth like a boomerang. And wasn't that fascinating? Steve Wong works at Home Depot, so has access to many hammers. He offered to chuck a few. His co-worker, M-Dash, who'd shortened his given name to Rapstar length, wondered how one would catch a red-hot hammer falling at a thousand miles an hour. Anna, who runs her own graphic design biz, said that there'd be nothing to catch, as the hammer would burn up like a meteor. And she was right. Plus... She didn't buy the simplicity of my cosmic throw-wait-return. She is ever doubtful of my space program bona fides. She says I'm always Apollo missions this and Lunacod moon landing that and have begun to falsify details in order to sound like an expert. And she is right about that, too. I keep all my nonfiction on a pocket-sized Kobo digital reader, so I whipped out a chapter of... No Way, Ivan, Why the CCCP Lost the Race to the Moon, written by an emigre professor with an axe to grind. According to him, in the mid-60s, the Soviets hoped to trump the Apollo program with just such a figure-eight mission. No orbit, no landing, just photos and crowing rights. The Reds sent off an unmanned Soyuz with supposedly a mannequin in a spacesuit. But so many things went south that they didn't dare try again, not even with a dog, Kaputnik.
1: This is just one of the tales Tom Hanks tells in this first collection of his short stories. They are surprising, intelligent, heartwarming, and, for the millions and millions of Tom Hanks fans, an absolute must-have. Uncommon Type is available now to download and own from Audible, iTunes and Kobo.